Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn once again to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, as we continue to glean much from our Lord's words to the apostles and also to us with respect to the marks of a true disciple. It was 1885 in the Republic of Uganda in Africa. And like most rulers throughout history, the king of Uganda hated Christianity. And there were three young boys between the ages of 11 and 15 that had professed Christ as Savior. And the king thought that he would make a lesson out of them to all of the people. And he ordered that they be burned at the stake unless they recant their faith and deny their Savior. As the story goes, they approached their posts where they would soon be tied on top of all of the wood that had been gathered. And as they came to that place of their execution, those three young boys asked that the following message be given to the king. They said, and I quote, tell his majesty that he has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change his mind or he will land in a place of eternal fire. As they stood there at their post, the youngest boy, whose name was Yusufu, said, Please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle in the fire that takes me to Jesus. And as they stood bound, awaiting the torch, they sang a song that later became and continues to be a favorite in that country among Christians. It's a song called the Martyr's Song. And one of those verses reads, Oh, that I had wings like the angels. I would fly away and be with Jesus. That day, 40 adults who watched the execution placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very opposite of what the king hoped to accomplish. And later, many more came to a saving knowledge of Christ because of the testimony of those three young boys. And interestingly enough, two years later, many more Christians were martyred in the same way. Dear friends, it is a rare and a glorious thing to behold a genuine soldier of the cross, a true disciple of Christ, And whenever I have had the privilege of knowing such a person or reading of such a person, I have always been humbled with their Christ-like virtues. And it always brings such conviction to my heart. 
And their lives are characterized by the very virtues that flow from the six characteristics of true discipleship that we have been studying here in Matthew chapter 10. May I remind you that in verses 24 through 42, the Lord is preparing the twelve to go out on their first missionary journey. And he is reminding them of the necessary heart attitudes that they must have in order to effectively serve the King of Kings and glorify their God. And indeed, before we look into the text, may I remind you, dear friends, that such soldiers are a rare find indeed these days. You know, many people wear the uniform of Christianity, but few truly love their commander in chief. The God man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life for those who are united to him in faith. And when you think about it, never in the history of the world has there been a ruler that set forth such an example. Oh, there have been many rulers that will send their servants into battle for some earthly cause. And certainly many soldiers have willingly given their lives for matters that sometimes are eternally inconsequential. But only the king of kings has willingly gone on before and willingly sacrificed his life that we might live eternally in the presence of his glory. And true disciples of Christ are captivated by these marvelous truths. And absolutely nothing on earth can separate a true disciple of Christ from the love of Christ. For indeed their heart will resound with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, where we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he goes on to say, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So beginning in verse 24 through verse 42, Jesus graphically describes six telltale characteristics of genuine discipleship. Last week, we looked at the first two. You will remember that the first one is a willing submission to the Lordship of Christ in verses 24 and 25. A true disciple will give full allegiance to the Lord. Striving to trust and obey and serve and worship him and him alone. And secondly, a true disciple will fear God more than man. Verses 26 through 31. He understands, as the Lord said in verse 28. That we are not to fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, the true disciple of Christ has a worldview that is eternal, not temporal. He recognizes that God is in control and that his eternal purposes will never be thwarted. That he will ultimately judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And the true disciple will therefore understand that although the world hates Christ 
and those who belong to him, the true disciple will refuse to bow the knee to the puny powers of wicked man. Rather, he will serve the Lord of hosts. Who, according to first Corinthians fifteen twenty four, will deliver up the kingdom to the God and father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And today we come to verse thirty two throughout the rest of the chapter and we see the rest of the characteristics that the Lord gives us of true discipleship. The third characteristic would be revealed to us in verses thirty two through thirty three. And that is that the true disciple publicly confesses Christ. Notice what the text says in verse 32. Jesus says, everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. The word confess is is a fascinating term in the original language. It is a compound word, homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak or to acknowledge. And literally what the word confess means is to say the same thing about something as God would say. In other words, to wholeheartedly affirm in our heart the truth that God would have us speak. Literally to say the same thing as God is saying about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one who publicly confesses Christ would publicly confess that indeed Jesus is the third person of the triune Godhead. He is the son of God, that he is the creator and the sustainer of the world, that he, according to Acts 4.12, is the one, the only one. By which man can be saved, as that text says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The true disciple will therefore affirm what we read in Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God exalted him, referring to Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven And on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, there it is again, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, these are the magnificent truths we are to affirm in our hearts and publicly proclaim before men. This is the heart of a faithful disciple, one who outwardly confesses the expression of of what he believes with all of his heart in his innermost being. And it's tragic to see how few Christians are willing to confess, are willing to publicly confess Jesus as Lord. And think about it. Sometimes we are afraid of embarrassment. We're afraid of ridicule. Sometimes we're even afraid of physical harm, especially even with family members. And you know, it can, all ha- it can happen to all of us Paul even warned young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. But friends, only those who publicly confess Christ, both verbally and in their conduct, will be able to stand before the Father someday. Now hear this. And be able to hear Jesus tell the Father, as we read in this text, 
that indeed, Father, this is one of ours. He or she was not ashamed of the gospel. He or she was not ashamed to publicly confess me as Savior and Lord. But notice what he says in verse 33. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. The term deny means literally to declare that you do not know or have dealings with someone. It was used, for example, with Peter when he denied the Lord three times. And you might say, well, I'm glad I've never done that. Oh, dear friends, be careful. Denial can take on many forms, some of which may be a pattern in your life. For example, maybe it takes on the form of just not speaking up when the name of Christ is being misused, when it is being slandered, when he is being maligned. Or not speaking up when the gospel is being attacked. Just not saying anything when some family member or some friend is attacking the truth of who Christ is. Or perhaps you deny him with your silence in proclaiming the gospel when you have an opportunity to witness and you decide not to say anything. Or maybe you deny him as many do by being what I call a chameleon Christian. You know the type, the type that want to blend in with the world so no one recognizes that I'm a believer. So that no one sees that I am committed to Christ. If I can get real practical, sometimes it is in the use of vulgarity and dirty talk. Or sometimes it can be in our dress. How sad it is to see. Christian women showing as much skin as they possibly can and showing all the curves of their body. Friends, do you realize that that's a violation of God's commandment to be moral and to dress modestly? That's a form of denying Christ. And I know that many times we can very unwittingly reflect our culture. And we see that certainly in dress. You go down to Walmart and I think if I see one more obese woman wearing shorts with a bare midriff, I think I will be sick. But so often that type of immodesty and that type of grossness is manifested even in Christian women. That's a form of denying Christ. Or what about the men? Isn't it sad to see so many of our young men and sometimes Christian young men dressing in ways that really reflects the God hating pagans? That we would see, for example, on MTV. Seeing how much underwear you can show. And how low your pants can go. This is a form of denying Christ. Playing the world's music. Worshipping Hollywood idols. Sports idols. Music celebrities. Dear friends, may I remind you that God has said in 2 Corinthians 6.17. To come out and be separate from the world. You must understand That it is our separateness from the world that draws people to Christ, not our similarity with it. And so often we deny Christ in the way we conduct ourselves, even in the clothes that we wear and the things that we say and the places that we go. You see, friends, any kind of disobedience to the Lord is a denial of the Lord. And such denial is not a mark of a true disciple. 
Remember Jesus' words in verse 33. Whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And it's interesting here. The grammar is in the future tense. And so this is a reference to a future judgment, a time when he, when he will separate the true from the false. In fact, later on in chapter 25, Jesus describes the judgment of the wicked at the end of the great tribulation, a time when, according to verse 31 of that text, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then later in verse 41, he says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, it is always a grief to me as a pastor to think of this. How incredibly sad, how unspeakably sad it is to think of those who refuse the gospel of Christ and put it far from them. And worse yet, for those who profess Christ as Savior but do not possess Him, those that serve themselves under the guise of religiosity, those who actually deny the very one that they claim to worship every Sunday, those that claim to be citizens of light, and yet by their lives they indicate that they are in fact citizens of the kingdom of darkness. And dear friends, please hear this. The consequences of such denial is unspeakably horrific. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 11, the children of the kingdom of that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, shall be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. A place of no light and light always symbolizes hope in the Bible. A place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said a century ago, and I quote, In hell there is no hope. They have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written, forever. In the fires there blaze out the words, forever. Up above their heads they read, forever. Their eyes are galled and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever. Oh, if I could tell you tonight that hell would one day be burned out and that those who were lost might be saved, there would be jubilee in hell in the very thought of it. But it cannot be. It is forever. They are cast into outer darkness. But friends, think what a glorious contrast for those who confess Christ in their character, in their conduct, and in their creed. You see, ours is a confident hope of heavenly bliss because of the glory of Christ and the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us as we have been united to Him in faith as our Savior and Lord. And ours is the assurance that Jesus Himself will confess us before the Father, even as we confessed Him before man. 
Then anticipating the persecution that his disciples would inevitably face, Jesus continues and gives us a fourth characteristic of true disciples. Beginning in verse 34 through 37. And that fourth characteristic would be that the true disciple values Christ more than family. Notice verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The words here are words quoted from the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, where the prophet speaks of a time yet future when the Messiah would come. And of course, that time was then in the first century when Jesus quoted this text. And certainly it will continue again when he comes again his second time. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 6 The prophet speaks to us and says that that will be a time when son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now, friends, please understand. Well, the peace of Christ certainly consumes the heart of every believer. Because we are now at peace with God. We've been reconciled as sinners to a holy God. Be that as it may, the reality of life is that because of our faith in Christ and being united to him, this side of glory, we will experience perpetual conflict. You see, the gospel is inherently offensive. It cuts like a sword, especially in families where Christ is denied. If I can digress for a moment. This concept strikes a death blow to those who will exhaust themselves to make the gospel inoffensive to seekers. Martin Luther, when he took a stand against a millennium of Roman Catholic apostasy and political power, said, and I quote, If our gospel were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. Jesus said in Luke 12, in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. He goes on to say in verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. You see, friends, these words blast the apostate logic of ecumenism. Where the gospel is diluted to some sentimental bumper sticker that basically says God is love and leave it at that. Where truth is sacrificed on the altar of tolerance and where true discipleship is ridiculed as legalism and narrow minded fanaticism. But beloved, Jesus did not come to make peace with the world, but to declare war against it. 
And true disciples will experience violence whenever they take a stand for truth. Whenever they take a stand for righteousness in a world that hates God. Notice that three times in that passage in Matthew 10, he uses the term against to describe the rendering asunder of even family relationships. The term in the original language means to cut in two, to divide in two, to to set at variance. And I've seen this hundreds of times, and I'm sure many of you have as well, where family members are required to choose to either obey Christ or compromise, where they are put into a position where they must either stand for truth or error, where they must take the side of righteousness or acquiesce to evil. You know, when those times come, suddenly the true cost of discipleship becomes painfully clear. And we ask ourselves the question, well, will I deny the master to protect myself or will I stand for him regardless the cost, even in this precious relationship within my family? What a grief it must be to the Savior when we cower before even family members with a weak faith and a low view of God and compromise to somehow to somehow make a hollow peace with family members and in so doing deny Christ. May I ask you, are you denying Christ in your family in order to keep peace? If so, Jesus says, you are not worthy of me. You see, friends, he redeemed you for his sole possession. He redeemed me and you so that we could give him glory. And he alone is to be our master and our Lord. We are to fear him, not man. Practically speaking, and I've dealt with this over the years, hundreds of times, more with wives than husbands, but most of the time, wives will be married to ungodly husbands. And they will ask, what should I do? Well, certainly, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, you need to to model godliness in that relationship. Model humility. Be a living testimony to your husband Or husbands to your wives if she is ungodly. But again, ladies, if I can put it this way, you be submissive to your husband unless he asks you to do something that violates God's commands. And then at that point, according to Acts 5.29 and all of the other texts throughout Scripture, you are to obey God, not man. Most of the time what I hear is something like, well, my husband won't allow me to go to church. Or my husband refuses to let me serve in the church or or, or worship the Lord or have fellowship with other believers. Pastor, what am I supposed to do? The answer is very clear. You are to obey God, not man. Well, what would that practically mean? Well, God has commanded you to not forsake the assembling together of the saints. Hebrews 10, 25. He's commanded you to exercise your gifts in the context of the body of Christ in a local fellowship, according to 1 Corinthians 12. 
We could go on. He's commanded you to be equipped in sound doctrine by a pastor teacher for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ in Ephesians 4. He's commanded all of us to obey our leaders and to submit to them for they keep watch over our souls. Hebrews 13, 17. But beloved, regardless of what the situation is, here's the point. We must all examine our hearts and remember that true discipleship that honors the Lord, first of all, submits to the Lordship of Christ. It fears God more than man. It publicly confesses Christ and it values Christ even more than family. And fifthly, the true disciple will value Christ more than life. Notice what he says in verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You see, the apostles did not grasp the coming reality of Christ's crucifixion. Much more than they are any more than they did their eventual martyrdom. And here Jesus poses the very real possibility that true discipleship may cost you your life. And here Jesus poses this to them. And certainly we know that the cross is a well-known symbol of torture for those who dare defy Rome of that day. And Rome, of course, became historically a symbol of cruelty, of power gone mad in a civilization that destroyed itself from the inside out through corruption, which, by the way, have undeniable parallels with our own country that is repeating the same forms of wickedness. Everything from excessive taxation and government control to an obsession with pleasure and entertainment and immorality. And, of course, the final stage that betrays the utter insanity of a culture gone mad with sin is the tolerance of homosexuality. So the apostles understood that following Christ might even cost them their lives. And friends, may I ask you, are you willing to follow Christ even if it costs you your life? Unfortunately, many are like those that Jesus goes on to describe in verse 39. First part, he says, he who has found his life. In other words, even those religious people who have deceived themselves into believing that they are true disciples, but in reality, they follow their own lusts. They love the world. They love all of the things of the world, the pleasures of the world. They live for self, not for Christ. He who has found his life shall lose it. It's interesting. I was talking with a man recently. who's living in every imaginable kind of sin. And uh, he's, he's a real playboy. And. One of the things he told me, and it, 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 it just hit me, it's just such a great illustration of this and such a sad one. He said, you know, there's nothing about my life, Dave, that that I would change. He said, I'm having too much fun to give it all up for church. Of course, the dear guy is clueless, doesn't understand Christ. Indeed, there's a way, the Bible says, that seems right to a man, but the end is what? The end is death. There is pleasure in sin for how long? For a season. And indeed there is great pleasure in it. But he who has found his life, the Lord says, shall lose it. In other words, 
All the world has to offer is but a fleeting pleasure. None of it will last. But he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. You see, friends, here is the spirit of genuine discipleship. And oh, what a riddle it is to the world. What what a paradox it is, a divine paradox that cannot be reconciled by the unregenerate heart. That old Puritan theologian from the 16th century, John Trapp, said this, and I quote, He that findeth his life, that is, redeemeth it with the forfeiture of his faith, with the shipwreck of his conscience, makes a loser's bargain, makes more haste than good speed, Whiles in running from death as far as he can, he runs to it as fast as he can. Dear friends, how can I ever explain the transforming power of regeneration? For those of you who have not experienced that, it's like trying to explain a sunset to a blind person. And I say this with all humility because it only is by the power of Christ That I ever became a new creature in Christ. How do you explain what it means to experience the miracle of the new birth? When the old things pass away and the new things come. When we're given a new mind and a new heart and a new song. When suddenly, as the hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When I reflected upon this in my studies, my mind went to something that I read by Charles Spurgeon as he described this very thing in his life back in the 1800s in London. Here's what he said. How do I know that I'm a believer? Why? By the very remarkable change which I underwent when I believed. For when a man believes in Jesus Christ, there is such a change wrought in him that he must be aware of it. As in the case of the blind man, when his eyes were opened, he said, One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. He goes on to say, Brethren, we have further evidence that we believe, for our affections are so altered. The believer can say that the things he once loved, he now hates. And the things he hated, he now loves. That which gave him pleasure now causes him pain. And things which, were, things which were irksome and unpleasant have now become delightful to him. Especially is there a great change in us with respect to God. We once said in our hearts, no God. Not that we dared say there is no God. But we wanted to get away from him. We would have been glad to hear that there was no God. But oh, how he altered our affections. And now our greatest joy is in in God. The nearer we can approach to Him, the better. The very sound of His name is delicious music to us. We know also that we believe because though very far from perfect, we love holiness and strive after purity. You that have believed in Jesus, He says, do you not now pant for after holiness? Do you not endeavor to do that which is right and when you are conscious that conscious that you have failed, does not your conscience prick you? Have you not gone on your knees in bitterness of soul and said, My God, help me and deliver me, for I delight in thy commandments. Help me to keep thy statutes. And by this change of conduct, we know that we have believed in Jesus Christ. 
Then he goes on to say, we know that we have believed in Jesus Christ because now we have communion with God. We are in the habit of speaking with God in prayer and hearing the Lord speak with us when we read his word. Some of us have spoken with our Lord Jesus so often that we have grown to be near and dear friends and whatsoever we ask in prayer, he grants us. And answered prayers are sweet testimonies to our faith. And finally, Spurgeon says, I know that I have believed in the Lord Jesus because I have over and above all this a secret something indescribable to others, but well known by ourselves, which is called in Scripture the witness of the Holy Spirit, for it is written The Spirit himself also beareth witness with our spirit that we are born of God. Do you know what it means, he asks. If you do not, I cannot tell you. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, the word tells us. There comes stealing over the soul sometimes a peace, a joy, a perfect rest, a heavenly deliciousness, a supreme content in which... Though no voice is heard, yet are we conscious that there is rushing through our souls like a strain of heaven's own music, the witness of the Spirit of God. We are sure of it, as sure as we are of our own being. And by that witness, we know that we are indeed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, the transformation that takes place when we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is... A miracle beyond our understanding. And when that new birth actually occurs, we indeed become new creatures in Christ. We are, the Bible says, partakers of a divine nature. We are aliens of this world. And what seems irrational to the world becomes exceedingly rational to us. And it is for this reason that a genuine disciple of Christ submits to the Lordship of Christ fears God more than man, publicly confesses Christ, values Christ more than family, values Christ more than life, and finally values eternal, not temporal rewards. Notice verse 40 as we hurry along here this morning. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Dear friends, this is a fascinating and precious promise that the Lord gives us. Let me break it down for you briefly. It's really rather simple. What he's saying is those who receive the testimony of a true disciple that publicly confesses Christ will therefore receive Christ as their savior. And likewise, anyone who receives the son receives the father. Now, if I can digress for a moment, some will say, well, the father and the son are one and the same. They're just the same person and even the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's all one and the same. There's no such thing as a trinity. Blasphemy. Not at all. Jesus says in John 8, as he boldly spoke to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He goes on to say, if God were your father, you would love me. 
for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. I don't know how much clearer he could make it. Certainly, there are many more passages to give evidence to the glorious reality of the Trinity, of a triune God that exists as one in three persons. Although it is incomprehensible to us, it is a reality that is woven through the tapestry of Scripture. So Jesus tells the apostles that anyone who receives your testimony, in other words, your proclamation, is going to receive me and And when they receive me, they receive the father. And then thirdly, he says, those who receive the disciple himself receives Christ in that that disciple is an emissary of Christ, an ambassador of Christ. And he goes on to say that God not only rewards the prophet, but anyone who receives the prophet. What do you mean receives? Well, accepting him, giving him accommodations, appreciating him. Uh, supporting him, giving him food, lodging, whatever. In other words, anyone that embraces my servant embraces me and will even receive the servant's reward. But this reward goes beyond just receiving a prophet, which would be a fourth teller of truth. It includes any righteous man. Now, friends, catch this. What the Lord is saying is that any time you do any service to any of the little ones... He uses this term. It's a wonderful term. Little ones uh, a reference. It's an endearing reference to any believer. Uh, no matter how seemingly insignificant and unimportant, unremarkable, uneducated, un- underprivileged, whenever you do anything to one of his little ones, God sees it and he's going to reward you. Even something as mundane and seemingly inconsequential as giving one of his little ones, as he says, a drink of water. God sees it all and he will reward it all. Certainly as a parent. I virtually never forget an act of kindness that is offered to one of my children. How much more our heavenly father. John MacArthur Summarize this so well, and I quote, whenever we become the source of blessing for others, we are blessed. And whenever other believers become a source of blessing to us, they are blessed. In God's magnificent economy of grace, the least believer can share the blessings of the greatest. And no one's good work will go unrewarded. Oh, dear friends, please hear this. A true disciple is perfectly content to faithfully and patiently wait upon his God for his reward, whatever it may be. Though most of the time it will never be realized until glory. That is the heart of a true disciple. The rewards of the world, the praise of man, fortune and fame, earthly pleasures, whatever it is, they they have no hold on the true disciple of Christ. For they are like Abraham who... According to Hebrews 11 and verse 9, lived by faith as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreigner in the land, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. A reference to the new Jerusalem that is described in detail in Revelation 21. Dear friends, I appeal to you on the basis of the Lord's clear directives here in these texts. I appeal to all of you who name the name of Christ and call him Lord. And seek to serve him as a true disciple. 
Measure yourself against the divine standard, not your own standard, not the standard of the world. Do you joyfully submit to the Lordship of Christ? Do you fear God more than man? Do you publicly proclaim him without compromise? Do you value him more than family? Do you value him more than life? And do you value eternal, not temporal reward? And I would close this morning just sharing my heart as I reflected upon these glorious truths in my study this week. For my own sake and for the Lord's sake, I summarize these virtues in a poetic prayer. And I offer it to you in closing. Oh, Christ, it is to thee I bow as Savior, Lord and King. Asking not why, but how. To you alone I cling. And by your Spirit's matchless power, I fear thee more than man. Even if my life's required, tis by your grace I'll stand. May your name I ne'er deny, nor compromise the faith. More of thee my soul doth cry. O God, I plead for strength. Even if my family wails. Or my body racked with pain. May not fear my soul assail. But trust in heaven's gain. Let's pray together. Father, these truths strike at the very core of who we are as we live in a world that hates you. Oh God, how I pray that you will give us the power to live for your glory. To fear you and you alone. Lord, thank you for that work of grace that you have wrought within our souls. Because we know it is not of ourselves. Thank you for the transforming power of your spirit. And Lord, how I plead on behalf of anyone that might be in this room today. That has never embraced you as Savior and Lord. Oh Lord, may they not deny you one minute more. May you overwhelm them with such conviction that they come running to the feet of the Savior and cry out to you, Oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that that will be the cry of their heart this day. And what a joy it is knowing that you will never turn away anyone who cries out to you for salvation. Lord, you are a loving and a redeeming God, and we praise you for it. Thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615 746-0113.